Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, courageous journalist Mabel Norris Reese challenged the notoriously racist sheriff Willis McCall in the mid-20th century. I think the turning point for her, because she covered the first trial, was the shooting of the Groveland Boys in 1951 as they were waiting for the second trial. We'll discuss how NASA managed the public image of the first astronauts. The astronauts seemed to embody the personal qualities in which Americans of the era wanted to believe. Bravery, honesty, love of God and country, and family devotion. And we'll talk about activities at the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Brave, heroic, and fearless are just some of the words used to describe journalist Mabel Norris Reese, recipient of the first National Courage in Journalism Award in 1956. She fought for social justice while facing threats and intimidation from the racist Lake County Sheriff Willis McCall and his enablers in the Ku Klux Klan. Gilbert King, Pulitzer Prize-winning author of Devil in the Grove and Beneath a Ruthless Sun, says that Mabel Norris Reese was owner and editor of the Mount Dora Topic beginning in 1947. They'd have these pool of reporters at the press conference, and she was the only woman. Uh, so she was in with the, you know, the Sentinel, the Daily Commercial, the Leesburg, all these newspapers, but she's really the only woman. And, and not only that, but she actually runs her own newspaper. So she had a lot more freedom than some of these guys that she's working with. But I just found it really fascinating to see her trying to negotiate this man's world, this club, where these male journalists were kind of like protecting the status quo a little bit more. And Mabel had a little bit more autonomy and, and she could actually write about what she wanted. So it's really an interesting dynamic to see something in the 40s and this woman who's running the newspaper and, and just be thrust into these major stories. Cindy Erickson remembers Mabel Norris Reese as a crusader for justice and as a grandmother. I remember her as actually being very nurturing. I lost my first tooth at her house and was petrified the tooth fairy wouldn't be able to find me. So she made a phone call, which I assumed was to the tooth fairy, to tell the tooth fairy where I was. When I was in third grade, we had desegregation of the schools, and she had me write a letter to the editor about there's nothing wrong with us being desegregated, and I don't know what all the hoopla is about. So she definitely pushed me to be aware of what was going on and to be aware of racial tensions and 
to just stand up for what was right, and she'd push real hard for that, even when she was being very nurturing. There were still the, the suggestions, you need to do this, and if the gentle push didn't work, she could get much more forceful, because she felt so strongly. Just a couple of years after Mabel Norris Reese began reporting on events in Central Florida, the infamous Groveland rape trial began. Gilbert King. The Groveland case started in Lake County in 1949. It was a young woman and her husband, who she was separated from at the time, uh, went out on a date to try to get their marriage back together, and uh, something happened alongside of the road. The next thing we know, she had made the claim that she had been abducted and sexually assaulted by four African-Americans. This brought the Klan in, started burning down African-American homes. It became a powder keg. A really big trial happened like a little bit more than a month later, involved Thurgood Marshall. So this became a very big civil rights case focused in Central Florida at the time. Ben Green is author of the book Before His Time, The Untold Story of Harry T. Moore, America's First Civil Rights Martyr. In 1949, I don't think anyone is still certain what happened on this night with the Paget couples, Willie and Norma Paget, a young couple who had separated. They got back together to go to a square dance. And on the way home, something happened. They claimed that she had been attacked by four young black men and carried off and raped. They claimed they were nowhere around. Regardless, all hell broke loose in Groveland. There were several nights of rioting, Klansmen caravanning through Groveland, shooting up the black community. The entire black population of Groveland was evacuated to Orlando. A couple houses were burned down. Of the four Groveland suspects, one of them was shot and killed before trial. Three of them went to trial and were convicted. Harry Moore, got involved in it from the very beginning. As soon as they were arrested, he sent a young attorney to Rayford to interview the defendants and came back with a story saying they had just been beaten mercilessly. They'd been hung over a water pipe in the Lake County Jail and Willis McCall's deputies beat them with rubber hoses. Those beatings were then documented by the FBI and by the NAACP National Office. So he was involved in it. He was calling it a travesty of justice from the very beginning. Harry T. Moore contacted Mabel Norris Reese, asking her to write about how Sheriff McCall was mishandling the Groveland case. Bill Gary is president of the Harry T. and Harriet V. Moore Cultural Complex. Four young men uh, from the Groveland, Florida area, uh, was accused of raping this young white woman. There was a trial held, defendants were convicted, but then there was evidence introduced that they was gonna have a retrial and supposedly the sheriff of Lake County, Willis McCall, was transporting two of the defendants from one jail to another. And along the way, something happened. The two defendants ended up being shot, one being killed. The sheriff's account of that was they tried to escape, although they were handcuffed and shackled, which kind of makes it hard to believe. Mabel Norris Reese had initially supported Sheriff McCall in her articles, but it was the shooting of Walter Irvin and the killing of Sam Shepard while in McCall's custody that was a turning point for her. Gilbert King. She came down here, I think she wanted to buy into the community, reporting on a lot of community news, Little League scores, um, Northerners who were coming back down to Mount Dora. 
And I think she was friends with the prosecutor, Jesse Hunter, and, and helped her get into the world of Sheriff Willis McCall. And I think she was a little bit naive and, and sort of thought that racially that this was an idyllic place when it clearly was not. And I think the turning point for her, because she covered the first trial, was the shooting of the Groveland boys in 1951 as they were waiting for the second trial. The prosecutor, Jesse Hunter, at that point said, I don't think that that was an escape attempt. I think it was deliberate. Mabel had a lot of communications, and that was really her turning point. And I noticed if you look at her career, from that moment on, and it was like November 1951, she was all about justice. And justice didn't sell in a small town newspaper. That's not what people really wanted to hear about, white supremacy. And, and so you could see, as she got her courage and as she found her, her sort of inspiration about the things to write about, the things that really interested her, she's also facing the backlash in her own community. And uh, I, I thought that was a really powerful thing that just, she just continued to do it, knowing that it was going to hurt her pocketbook, as she said. Bill Gary. Harry T. Moore got involved in that case and went and, and tried to get statements of anybody that knew about it from the, the surviving witness themselves. And he called on the governor of Florida, wrote letters to the Justice Department calling for the suspension and the charging of murder of uh, Sheriff Willis McCall. Now, some contend that because Willis McCall was such a powerful sheriff back then, and, and as you know, in the state of Florida, sheriffs generally have a lot of power there. They feel that he had some part in the, either the planning or the implementation of Harry Moore's ultimate death. After the initial conviction, the NAACP and Thurgood Marshall appealed the death sentences of Walter Irvin and Sammy Shepard. Ben Green. Their convictions were overturned by the Supreme Court. A new trial was scheduled. The day of a hearing for the new trial, Willis McCall and his deputy went to Rayford to pick him up on the way back to Lake County, claimed that the two prisoners jumped him and attacked him, and he shot him. He emptied his revolver into him. He killed Sam Shepard, uh, mortally, seriously, critically wounded Walter Irvin, who did survive, and told a completely different story, which is that McCall just yanked him out and started shooting. At that point, Harry T. Moore started calling for McCall to be removed from office, indicted for murder. Uh, he's telegramming and writing letters to the governor, to the U.S. attorney, to Thurgood Marshall, to the FBI. And then just six weeks later, he was blown up in his house. So the morning after the bombing in Mims, people immediately connected the Groveland case to the Moore bombing. And when the FBI agents and the local deputies worked their way through the crowd that had gathered and said, why would anyone have wanted to kill Harry Moore? Everybody immediately said Groveland. Mabel Norris Reese was not killed for her efforts on behalf of racial justice as Harry T. and Harriet V. Moore were. She did, however, face an ongoing campaign of intimidation. Gilbert King. She started writing about the support of the Brown versus Board decision, which was not a very popular decision in the South. But she was writing about saying, we need to make this work. We need to be patient. This is the right thing to do. And that was when the trouble started. You know, the white supremacists started like bombing her house, um, poisoned her dog. They defaced her office right up the street, just you know, vandalized it, wrote KKK all over it. Um, and, and the final turning point, which is just bizarre to me, is some white supremacists 
opened up a rival newspaper in Mount Dora, as if Mount Dora needed a second newspaper. And basically, Willis McCall went around and just threatened all of Mabel's advertisers. And that was it. They had no choice. Willis McCall was the most powerful person in Lake County and basically just ran her out of town, ran her out of the county. Mabel Norris Reese continued to fight for social justice from the relative safety of the Daytona Beach News Journal. Many of her award-winning articles gained national recognition. Her granddaughter, Cindy Erickson, says that Mabel remained politically engaged until the end of her life on January 1, 1995. She was always on top of politics and what was going on. Even when she got older after she'd retired, when C-SPAN came out on cable, my grandmother was the happiest person. She always had that on, would always talk politics. She lost her sight to macular degeneration, but still was on top of everything that was going on. And you couldn't go to her house without having a discussion about what was going on in the world, ever. <laughs> a lot of progress has been made to address the types of civil rights violations and social justice issues that Mabel Norris Reese wrote about, but there is still a long way to go. Bill Gary. It would be nice if we had come to that point where events of that nature were really just a memory, that they were part of history and whatever. It, it is not, and, and we have to recognize the reality of the time, that there's still a lot of work to be done. To find out more about the life and work of journalist Mabel Norris Reese, watch Florida Frontier's television episode 51. Check your local PBS schedule or watch it anytime at myfloridahistory.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime at myfloridahistory.org to listen to archived editions of this program, watch our public television series, Florida Frontiers, find out about upcoming events, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Connie Lester, Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Connie, the 2008 special issue of the Florida Historical Quarterly on NASA's 50th anniversary covered a number of topics that tell us about the local and national impact of the space program, but one that I think is particularly interesting was written by Roger D. Launius, who at the time of publication was the curator of the Division of Space History at the National Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C., his article explored the Apollo astronauts as cultural icons, and in doing so, he connects the space program to American beliefs and ideals of the mid-20th century. NASA's initial expectations for the program and the men who would venture into space were modest in terms of general public interest in the work, 
when they scheduled an event to introduce the seven Mercury astronauts who had been selected to make the first flights. As per President Dwight Eisenhower's direction, all the astronauts came from the armed forces and had been military test pilots. As historian Margaret Wittekamp explained, military test pilots met the needs of the space program. They were accustomed to flying high-performance aircraft, detecting a problem, diagnosing the cause, and communicating that analysis to the engineers and mechanics clearly. And they were used to military discipline, rank, and order. However, NASA had failed to appreciate the excitement that surrounded the introduction of the Mercury 7. On April 9, 1959, when they made their first appearance before a room of reporters and photographers, Lanius argues, astronauts became instant national heroes. And despite NASA's later heavy-handed public affairs officials, the main architects of their image. Connie, what sort of images did NASA's PR team project for the astronauts? Their image was a complex one that fit the period. As Lanius explains, the astronauts seemed to embody the personal qualities in which Americans of the era wanted to believe. Bravery, honesty, love of God and country, and family devotion. It helped that most of the press treated the men and their families with kid gloves. As a Life magazine reporter noted, these guys were heroes, most of them very smooth, canny operators with all of the press. They felt they had to live up to a public image of good, clean, all-American guys, and NASA knocked itself out to preserve that image. To some, they emerged as noble champions who would carry out the nation's manifest destiny beyond its shores and into space. They also embraced a traditional lifestyle that upheld family. However, as sociologist Phyllis Johnson pointed out, the public nature of what the astronauts did meant that their family and work lives were essentially inseparable. But family life was not supposed to interfere with work life, but it was acceptable for work life to overlap into their family time. Lanius claims that the astronauts put a very human face on the grandest technological endeavor in history, and the myth of the virtuous, no-nonsense, able and professional astronaut was born. It was a myth that periodically slipped to show its darker side as stories of sexual adventures and competition among members of the Mercury and Apollo crews emerged. Nevertheless, people took the revelations in stride, recognizing that the reality was different from the image. Was there a difference between the public personas of the Mercury 7 and the Apollo astronauts? Lanius claims that the Mercury 7 astronauts defined the myth of the astronaut that continued for successive generations of space travelers. The myth contained five essential components. First, the astronaut as everyman that imbibed in all the positive attributes of the national identity. Civic-minded citizen, trusted friend, good neighbor, worshiper at the local church. Second, the astronaut as defender of the nation. Like Cincinnatus at the plow, the astronauts came from the ranks of the nation's mainstream, not for personal fame or fortune, but to defend the nation and every man. Third, the astronaut as fun-loving young man. He enjoyed family and friends, speed and automobiles, and flying. Fourth, 
the astronaut as virile masculine representative of the American ideal, the personification of vigor and youth. And five, the astronaut as hero. As media-made celebrities, the astronauts could be likened to sports and entertainment idols, manufactured for public consumption. And like them, they had to attain great feats to remain heroes. Launius explores the key themes of the symbol of astronaut as everyman by focusing on specific members, Alan B. Shepard, Frank Borman, Neil Armstrong, and the flights of the Apollo 8, Apollo 11, Apollo 13, and Apollo 14. He concludes his article by noting that the astronauts represented a powerful generational theme, the young, powerful warrior guided by an older, prescient, and often mystical leader or leaders who envision a wonderful future for the nation. In this context, the astronaut is making safe the way for the civilization to go forward, to progress toward a utopian future elsewhere in the cosmos. I certainly remember the Apollo astronauts being portrayed as heroes when I was a kid. Thanks, Connie. You're welcome. Connie Lester is Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. This is Florida Frontiers. The historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens is in the O'Galley section of Melbourne, Florida. Holly Baker has more. In 1902, James Rossiter, an agent for Henry Flagler's Florida East Coast Railroad and a partner in the Indian River and Lake Worth Fishing Company, arrived in O'Galley in Brevard County with his wife and two young daughters, Caroline and Ella. James Rossiter soon became a standard oil agent for Brevard County. Angela McHugh is the site manager for the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens. She told me about the Rossiter sisters, Caroline and Ella. Both of them were born in the late 1800s, early 1900s in Jacksonville. Carrie was actually the oldest, and she was really James and Ella Rossiter, so their parents' second child. Um, but their first one died, and then they had Carrie, so they were quite excited about having her. But James Rossiter definitely wanted sons. And so they did have three brothers subsequently, years later. However, they are at least seven years older than all their brothers. So they're, they are a bit older, but they really got going in an era where it was pretty uncommon for women to get going in business. As Angela McHugh explains, Caroline Rossiter went on to become a successful businesswoman, despite being underestimated and even ridiculed for her career goals. She was most notably known as Miss Carrie. So she is officially named Caroline Rosser. It's on all of her legal documents. However, she never really went by that. So her, her being the oldest, her father decided to bring her in to the family business when she was about 15 years old. Because as I mentioned, with her being so much older than her brothers, it was going to be a while before they could take over the family business. So he would at least start showing her. And she does end up staying with him pretty much until she's about 22, 23. As he does pass away in 1921 of tuberculosis. 
Now her brothers were really entering their teenage years at this point, so they still weren't really capable of taking over the business. So she decided that when her father died and realized they were pretty cash broke. They had the business, they had their house, but their bills otherwise were month to month. Because James Rossiter was really reinvesting back into the businesses that she was going to have to do something if the family was going to survive. So she figured she already knew this area. She'd been working with him for years. She knew the contracts really well since she was specifically working with his Standard Oil contracts. But she figured oil was the next big thing. So she went to Standard Oil in Kentucky, so Kaiso as it was known, in 1921 herself, presented herself to the board and said, I believe that the distributorship should go to me. You know, I know this area. I'm familiar with these people. Florida is its own frontier and of itself that really needs to be approached differently than other areas. And of course, this is 1921. That board is not really excited to see her. You know, this is only a year after women's suffrage movement finally came through. And Carrie at this point is 23 years old. As I mentioned, her brothers are teenagers. She's really trying to support a family. So they go back and forth, and eventually one gentleman pipes up and says, well, just let the little lady have it. She'll run it to the ground in a year, and we'll give it to a man, and everything will be just fine. And they did intend that. They did give it to her, but they really thought she was going to fail, which ended up spinning their heads a bit because she actually outlasted probably all of the men in that boardroom, since she did stay for another 62 years. While her sister Carrie is perhaps better known due to her accomplishments with the Standard Oil Company, Ella Rossiter was successful in her own right. Among other ventures, she established and ran her own insurance office. She's also credited with starting the first library in O'Galley. So Ella also got interested within her own business sector, where Carrie was known for oil and their father was known for the fishing industry. Ella actually got interested in insurance. Now, I'm going to be honest, I don't know what's interesting about insurance, but Ella absolutely loved it. And we've got records of her first officially getting her licensing to sell insurance and become her own agent in 1926. So where Carrie gets started in 1921, Ella, who is, again, only two years younger, does get started in the Brevard area with the Rossiter Insurance Agency in 1926. Now, as the years go on, she does end up becoming pretty prolific and a very well-known figure within the community. After they retired in the 1980s, the Rossiter sisters focused their energy on preserving their family home. The place where Carrie and Ella grew up is now a museum restored to look as it did in 1908. Listed on the National Register of Historic Places, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens Complex is located on Highland Avenue in O'Galley, Florida. It includes the 1908 James W. Rossiter House, the 1901 William P. Raish House, and the Houston Family Cemetery. Since 2004, the Florida Historical Society has managed the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens under the direction of the Rossiter House Foundation. The home hosts historic tours and special events throughout the year. Angela McHugh. We do have our fall festival at the end of October. We also typically are part of the holiday tour of homes, which is us and various other houses in Brevard, where we all are decorated out for Christmas. And we have one ticket price that lets you into all of these. As you move into the spring, we do typically have our Easter events, which are a little more geared towards children. As you get towards the summer, that tends to get our busier time for events like weddings, bridal showers. Our grounds are open for renting, as is the Raish Parlor. However, the house itself does stay as a museum, but the grounds itself can be rented, and we usually get very busy in the spring with those events. If people are interested in a tour, we do have them Wednesday through Saturday at 10 a.m. noon and at 2. So you could always just look us up on our website or with the Florida Historical Society website and give us a call, an email, or you can just stop by.
For more information about the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens, go to rossiterhousemuseum.org. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, find us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org. You can also listen as a podcast. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Connie Lester and Holly Baker. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.